and please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, lay our hearts before you now. We are too desperate to uh, go through the motions and to play games. Uh, But instead, we cast our cares upon you. Uh, We are before you uh, and recognize here at the start that there is a potency to your word that exceeds, you know, the preparations of a preacher, uh, as, as meaningful as they may be. So we ask you, Lord, would your word uh, go to work in our hearts? Uh, Lord, would you apply the finished work of Jesus to our hearts? Lord, whether that is in a fresh way this morning, that we might apprehend more fully uh, the greatness of your gospel, its present power, its pertinence to our lives, or Lord, if that's for the first time, if, if there are those here who are curious, Lord, even if there are those who are skeptical and resistant, uh, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. Lord, be at work through this grace of preaching uh, that you would get glory, that your people would benefit, and that this city and even beyond would rejoice at the coming of their king. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few summers back in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a woman named Emily Krause and her boyfriend were driving their van down the road to go to a Dave Matthews concert. And along the way, alongside the road, there was a bicyclist whose bike had broken down, and they pulled over to help him and give him a ride. And, you know, conveniently, they, they discovered that this bicyclist, too, was on his way to the Dave Matthews concert. Uh, and not only that, they not only discovered that this person was, on his, was headed to the Dave Matthews concert, but that this was Dave Matthews. <laughs> the trip that began with the expectation of kind of being herded into the stadium, you know, with thousands of other people, uh, other people to, uh, you know, catch a glimpse from a distance of Dave Matthews became one uh, in which Dave Matthews was in the car. We're finishing up with Mark 10 this morning, and and for some time uh, in this gospel, we have been contending with what it means to meet God's Messiah, uh, to contend with the reality that He is King, that He is ushering in His kingdom uh, as one present with His people, as God with us. Uh, God not from a distance, but God directly in front of us. Not miles away up on the stage, as it were, but in the car. And this morning, we're looking at not only the final healing account of this gospel, but the final event before Jesus is hailed as king as he enters Jerusalem. Uh, So Jesus and his followers are on their way there. Uh, They're coming from Galilee, and now they're in this town of Jericho. This is the last town you come to before you get into Jerusalem. And along the way, um, because this was a well-traveled path for pilgrims going to worship, it was very common for there to be beggars, you know, hoping to um, benefit from the goodwill of pilgrims uh, making their way to the holy city. And sure enough, in the story, there happens to, they happen to come upon just such a person, a beggar, who happened to be blind. Now, this was a time in which there was no braille, there were no guide dogs, there were no beeping crosswalks. Uh, or anything else that would have helped a person like this in society. So, so to be in this condition, to be blind, and, and furthermore, to be begging by the side of the road is 
a devastating picture of brokenness. But there's also another layer to it. I don't want to overlook it, overlook it because certainly this person is broken, but the community is as well. The, the very reality of a blind man begging by the roadside exposes the fact, I want to say that this community is not only broken, it's disobedient. It, it is an open you know, wound of a society in rebellion against what God has called them to do. Uh, the Bible's full of commands to care for the poor. Maybe the most potent is in De- Deuteronomy 15, where the Lord says this to his people, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Open wide your hand. God's will that his people should never be put to begging and that God's people would provide for their needs, whatever it may be, as the text states, is right here. So just the designation itself, just this descriptor of blind beggar is in itself a scandal because this is a person who should be surrounded and supported. And I think the last encounter Jesus had with a blind man kind of highlights you know, the difference here. You know, the last time Jesus came across a blind man was in chapter 8. He was in Bethsaida, but, but actually Jesus didn't come across him uh, begging on the side of the road. Uh, he didn't come across him at all. That blind man, unlike this blind man, was lifted up, was carried to Jesus by his friends. You know, in that place, the community cared for him. Uh, in this place, the community does not. Uh, No one carries him to Jesus, so when he hears of Jesus passing by, he recognizes kind of the unique opportunity in front of him. He cries out to Jesus. He cries out quite loudly, so loudly that, you know, uh, the people around him are shushing him, uh, rebuking him, trying to get him to quiet down, you know, most likely because they feel that he's a bit of an embarrassment, that his need is just a little too out there, that Jesus is just, you know, a little too dignified and too important to be shouting out your needs to him. You know, he is, he, he's kind of ruining what would otherwise be a, a dignified and auspicious occasion. But there's another important contrast between the blind man in chapter 8 and the one here in chapter 10, and that is that unlike the blind man in Bethsaida, uh, we come to know this blind man by name. Uh, now, now, the mention of his name, I think, is just in itself significant. It is to say, this is a human being. He's got a name. He's got worth. But, but furthermore, the meaning of the name is actually significant, and it doesn't come across so much in, in how our translation has been rendered here this morning. But Mark, um, in the text, kind of puts this name in front of us in an odd way. Um, we have Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, um, Mark puts it out there as the son of Timaeus Bartimaeus. Um, 
that's odd enough, I think, to, to garner our attention because, of, because the normal way we would do it is how it's been rendered in our translation. So, you know, the way he puts it here kind of hits the ear a little bit like me telling you, I'm going to the Lindsay Theater tonight to see, Harry Con- this, to see the son of Harry Connick, Harry Connick Jr. Like, why, you know, why, why do you put it that way? Why the emphasis on the name? Why the odd way of configuring it? Well, I want to say when Mark presents us with his name, he's making a point with this name. Because Timaeus means worthy of honor. Um, Mark uses the name of Timaeus at the front like it's a title. Uh, This is worthy of honor, Bartimaeus. Not just blind beggar, Bartimaeus. Um, And and you might even say that the the emphasis on the name... uh, would be that he is worthy of double honor. He's worthy of extra care, precisely because he's as broken as he is. So despite the shaming and the shushing, Bartimaeus, you know, continues crying out. He goes, he goes louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, the, and, and that cry itself surfaces another significant name. It turns out this is the only place in this gospel that Jesus is referred to in this way as the son of David. And that's pretty significant because, you know, if you've been here you know, as we've gone through this series and, and you think about all the discussions that have centered on what it means that Jesus is king, what it means that he is ushering in his kingdom, you know, um, uh, you know that each time he has done that, he's not only been misunderstood by those closest to him, but he's been actively opposed. Someone's always been there to push back in some way or another that they should get the glory, that they should get the power, that they should get the prestige and the position. His own disciples oppose Jesus on this point. You know, they've given Jesus the silent treatment. They've gotten in fights among themselves about who's the greatest. You know, they've pushed back against this idea of the last being first and the first being last. You know, they've gone to Jesus demanding, as we saw last week, we want you to do whatever we ask. And we'd like, you know, the thing we ask is we'd like to have the seats of honor next to your throne. So when it comes to Jesus' kingship, you know, it seems that they've been blind. Blind to what Jesus has put in front of them about who he is and what he has come to do. And now that they're passing by an actual blind man, this guy's able to see Jesus for who he really is. So here... Here's this man with no illusions about his place in society, about his needs, about his prospects for receiving honor. And it's the one person in the entire gospel who identifies Jesus by the royal title, by the kingdom title, the Son of Man, on his way to Jerusalem to claim what is rightly his as king. So in short order, Jesus is going to be greeted as such by the crowd as he enters Jerusalem riding on a colt. Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. But before those shouts go up, this one does. Before all the shouts in Jerusalem goes up, the shout in Jericho, go, Jericho goes up from blind Bartimaeus. It seems that Bartimaeus has a capacity to see Jesus in his kingship because he's so broken, because he's so needy. He sees him clearly because whatever else he, he may know about Jesus, he seems to have learned along the way what the scriptures affirm about the son of David. He, he, he seems to know those promises, and I think in this moment is savoring those promises and attaching himself to those promises and casting aside all dignity because the promise is so 
important to him that, that when he comes, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And he will strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Those are the promises of the son of David. And he knows that the son of David would be just the kind of person who would hear my cries, who would hear the cry of the afflicted, who would bring blessing and sight to the blind, just as Isaiah said he would. So even though the crowd is, you know, energetically trying to stop the man so that Jesus can get on to the more important business of Jerusalem, Bartimaeus persists, and I think Bartimaeus persists because he knows the promise. And because he doesn't stop, Jesus does. Uh, unfailingly, when Jesus is very busy, when people around him are trying to get him onto more important business, um, he stops. Uh, here's the, and here's the incredible thing. Uh, Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, and Jesus calls out to Bartimaeus. A group of people close to him hear Jesus calling, and, and they say to this man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And even before he gets to Jesus... Bartimaeus responds by doing two things, and I actually think they're quite important. First, we're told he casts off his cloak. Now, I don't think it would be abusing the text too much to replace that word cloak with the word security. He casts off his security. The cloak was that which a beggar would spread before them. It was their means of procuring a life um, to collect, you know, whatever coins may be tossed their way. It was also a means of protecting their life. This, this garment... Um, would, have, would have served as a shelter. Uh, it would have been his protection. It was like his house. So, so this is the kind of thing a, a guy like Bartimaeus would have kept very close and, and certainly not something that he would just blithely cast off. And yet, you know, at the call of Jesus, he casts it off. And then another thing he does is we're told that he springs up. Now, the word Mark employs here is, is worthy of notice because it's the verbal form of the word Resurrection. That is to say, there's more going on, it seems, than him just getting up off the ground. It is like there is life in him that wasn't there before. Uh, this very much parallels, echoes the promise we heard from, from, from Isaiah a minute ago that, um, where is it? The lame man will leap like a deer. Well, Bartimaeus has just, has just sprung up. He's leapt like a deer uh, at the call of Jesus. And then he's in front of Jesus, and Jesus has a question for him. Uh, one, you know, that might seem a little odd for someone whose need is so obvious. He just asks him, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Um, and Bartimaeus answers that seemingly obvious question with a pretty obvious answer. You know, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to have my sight restored. Um, now, we've seen faith in Bartimaeus' actions, and I want to say there's also great faith in that answer. Um, for this simple reason, Bartimaeus actually tells Jesus what he wants. Um, that, I, I suspect, is a much rarer thing than, than we might appreciate. Uh, I don't know about you, but if someone with t tremendous resources uh, put this question to me, I, I'm not sure I would actually tell them what I really want. 
I, I don't know that I would say, you know, I would appreciate it if you would pay off my mortgage. That would make life a lot better. I'd probably, you know, mumble on about, I don't know, a gift card to Chipotle or something. But I was reminded this week, in college, I was a member of a church that had this kind of idea of asking for what you really want written into their mission statement. And their mission statement is this, attempt something so great for God that it is doomed to failure unless he is in it. Put it all out there. Put it all before him. Tell him what you really want. And, and, and I think it presses home the question, you know, what is your posture, what is my posture, our posture before the Lord? Uh, one of my old seminary professors, a guy named David Wells, uh, wrote an excellent piece about coming before the Lord. It was really a piece about prayer. You can look it up on the internet. I would really commend it to you that the title of this article is called Prayer, Rebelling Against the Status Quo. It's worth it just for the title. And in that article, he says, prayer only flourishes where there is a twofold belief. First, that God's name is hallowed too irregularly, his kingdom has come too little, and his will is done too infrequently. And second, that God himself, that God himself can change that situation. He goes on to say, petitionary prayer, therefore, is the expression of the hope that life as we meet it on the one hand, can be otherwise, and on the other hand, that it ought to be otherwise. It is therefore impossible to seek to live in God's world on His terms, doing His work in a way that is consistent with who He is, without engaging in regular prayer. He then goes on to ask, why then do we pray so little for our local church? Is it really that our technique is bad, our will's weak, our mind's listless? I don't believe so. There is plenty of strong-willed and lively discussion going on in the church, which in part or in whole may be justified about the mediocrity of the preaching, the emptiness of the worship, the superficiality of the fellowship, and the ineffectiveness in evangelism. So why don't we pray as persistently as we talk? He goes on to conclude that the answer, quite simply, is that we don't believe it will make any difference. We accept, however despairingly, that the situation is unchangeable. What we see will always be. This is not a problem about the practice of prayer, but rather about our understanding of its nature. Or more precisely, about our understanding of the nature of God and His relationship to the world. Now, that's something to consider since it is our conviction that our basic posture before the Lord this morning is exactly Bartimaeus' posture before Jesus on this day, that we are before the King, and that He asks us, what do you want me to do for you? So when's the last time you came before the King or we came before the King and asked actually for what only He can provide? You know, I'm convinced that that posture, um, that kind of prayer, actually always yields fruit because even if my circumstances don't change um, in the way that I might desire or envision, our hearts do because we begin to look to a gracious, loving, powerful Father for everything. And I don't know about you, but that particular posture I find relaxing. 
because I offload, you know, this other posture I have, which is the world is on my shoulders. And, the, and, and Jesus is, invites us to say, in fact, no, uh, you need to lay that upon me. So I think it's a rare thing to ask God for what we actually want. Maybe it's because we think it may be too demanding, too presumptuous. Uh, maybe we have some healthy cautiousness about imbibing into some kind of health and wealth mentality. Amen to that. Or maybe it's out of fear that if we lay our hearts before him really bare, we risk a disappointment from which we fear we may never recover. But what if, you know, we trusted that the Lord is actually sufficient for all of that? You know, sufficient for our disappointment, sufficient for our demandingness, our presumption, our bad theology, whatever, that He's sufficient for it. He meets us in that. You know, here's the thing. I, I believe this to be true. When it, when it comes right down to it, Jesus is always urging His people to ask for more, not less. And He is far more ready to call and to hear and to act than we are to come and to pray and to ask. The problem isn't with God not giving His children what they need. It is with us imagining that God to be stingy rather than generous, to be distant rather than near, to be demanding master rather than a doting father. So Bartimaeus not only models faith in asking Jesus for what he actually and truly wants from him, he embodies how Jesus urges us to come into the kingdom. Uh, virtually every time Jesus has spoken of, of what is necessary to enter his kingdom, he has said, you must enter like a child. Um, he's always pressing home the importance of taking the posture of a child, and I don't mean being immature, but I mean being dependent like a child is upon their father as a necessary condition into coming into the kingdom of God, of knowing God as king, or Jesus as king, of enjoying that kingdom. You know, just before this, I mean, you might remember, he actually wanted to get this point home so forcefully, he actually took a kid in his hands in his lap and he said, this is what I'm talking about. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And, and Bartimaeus really embodies that kind of faith because he's, he does what kids do here. He's very, he's very much like a child. He doesn't put the desires into check. He asks for what he wants. He asks for the greatest thing he can imagine. Of course, there's all, things he, there's all sorts of things he could have asked for, right? He could have said, you know, I, I'd love a place to live, Jesus. I'd love a little more money. I'd love some help with this sore back that I've got from sitting on the ground all day begging. I'd love a new cloak. All of that is very reasonable and very doable from a human standpoint. But he asked for the only thing that God the creator and sustainer of the cosmos and the one who made his eyes could actually give that he would make those blind eyes see again. He asked for the biggest, most impossible outlandish thing he could ask for, just like a little kid. I, you know, I was thinking about our kids this week. We have four kids, and when they were little, they would ask for all kinds of things. And I was trying to remember all the things they would ask for. I'm, you know, and I just, I, I, I can remember a few of them, but this is just, you know, kind of a partial list of the things they would ask their parents for before they got cynical or practical without giving a second thought, you know, to whether it was doable. You know, they had this posture of, you know, these are my parents, they give me everything, so I'll just ask for a little bit more of everything. 
But, you know, along the way, you know, they wanted a helicopter ride. I think several, along the way, several of them asked if we could have a monkey for a pet. Trips to China, full-size fire truck, a lake house, lasers, a million dollars. Can we go to Disneyland today, even though it's a thousand miles away? That's what kids do. The actions and answer of Bartimaeus have something of that quality to them. He just asks Jesus for everything he wants which would be impetuous and would be impossible were he not standing before the son of David, who is in possession of all the power to provide exactly what he needs. This summer marked the 80th anniversary of arguably one of the greatest sermons preached in the last hundred years. It was preached at University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford, England by C.S. Lewis. And this title of the sermon, famous sermon, called The Weight of Glory. And that sermon really centers on this idea of human desire. In it, Lewis argues that a dangerous idea has been smuggled into Christianity, one which he contends not only departs from the gospel, but is in fact diametrically opposed to the gospel. And, and it is the idea that the way to become more holy, more godly, is by putting desires in check. In other words, you grow in godliness by tamping down desire. Uh, you learn how to do without pleasure. You cut things out of your life in preparation for the next. You do sanctification by amputation. And, and, and Lewis argues that that is not a Christian idea. Um, Christianity, he argues, is not a religion of rejecting desire and enjoyment as much as it is one of indulging in it, of wanting more, not less, of enjoying and relishing um, and asking. He sums up, you know, that idea in the very famous off-quoted statement that if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child, he wants us to go on making mud pies and who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is on offer with a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And of course, God gives us the grace of mortifying sin and our desires change. But it is to say, Bartimaeus gets that he has a deep desire to see, and it's beautiful to Jesus, and Jesus honors it. And maybe it's because this kind of faith is so rare that the, the way Jesus heals him is so rare. Uh, for the first time, Jesus apparently takes no action in healing him. No special words are spoken. No eyes are spit upon. No hands are laid. It is as if, as immediate and impetuous and impossible as the request was, so was the healing. It is simply done. It is done just like that, and, and, and that, I think, makes its own point. Jesus says his healing has, become, has come because of his faith, and the way in which he heal, is healed is kind of a perfect picture of that. It is just simply done at the will of the Son of David, at the will of the King. What made him well is trusting Jesus with everything. He not only needs just Jesus desperately, he trusts Jesus desperately, and in, all in response to this seemingly obvious question, what do you want from me? What do you want for me to do for you? 
Now, Jesus has asked that question before. It's the exact same question, in fact, that he just asked of his disciples in verse 36. And while the inquiry is exactly the same, the individuals to whom it was put are quite different. The disciples weren't dependent and desperate and broken. They were demanding, and they had completely disordered desires. But, but here's why that contrast, I think, is so important. And it's just this, that Jesus doesn't just put that question to people who are in the right place spiritually. He puts it to those who are very clearly not as well. And whatever else that may mean, it means at least this, what do you want me to do for you, is a question for everyone. You know, it's a question for the poor and debilitated. It's a question for the proud and demanding. It's the question for the person who yo-yos between the two. You know, it's a question for a disciple of Jesus. It's a question for a denier of Jesus. But it is a question for everyone because I believe it is the question for every single one of us. What exactly do you want? Do you even know what you want? Have you become cynical? Have you become practical? Have you become fearful? Have, have you ever thought that there might be more to life than what you were able to eke out of it by, you know, your own version of whatever cloak it is you spread out into the world to collect whatever it may throw your way or whatever cloak it may be that you spread over yourself to protect you from whatever it may throw your way. But whatever it may be, I suspect we are all haunted by this nagging prospect that there ought to be more. It's the old John D. Rockefeller, richest man in the world, you know, how much money is enough for you? And the answer is just a little bit more. It could it be that for John D. Rockefeller or you or me this morning that our desires aren't too strong, they're too weak. That we imagine, you know, that our income, our retirement, our family, our career, our health, our relationships, our escapism, whatever else, you know, that that is where the life is and that is what we are able to get out of this life. That's my cloak. That procures life for me, that protects me. I think we would do well to think about our desires far more deeply than we do, not because we want too much, but because we settle for too little. Jesus shows that only he can actually provide what, every, what everything else can only promise, but never deliver, nagging you with the desire for more and never being able to give it to you. And I don't know if your desires are noble and worthy or if they're selfish and worthless, you know, sometimes I'm not even good at sorting that out in my own head. <laughs> but I do know this. Jesus loves for us to cry out to him. He loves to respond to his call to go to him. He loves for us to get in front of him, to lay our lives before him and ask him for everything. It is Jesus' way to always give more than we could ever ask or imagine. It is, as in, it is in his character to be lavish and gracious even great, so gracious as to change our desires. He loves it when we turn from other trusts and go to him, messy and muddled as we may be. He loves us to ask in faith. He loves us to ask for faith, trusting that he always gives what we need so much more, so much so that whether his response is the gift of saying yes to us, that's fun, or if it is the gift of saying no, it is always more than we ever asked or imagined. And I think the end of this passage illustrates that beautifully because as great a gift as the restoration of Bartimaeus' sight was, 
it turns out that wasn't the greatest gift. I want to say that's not even scratching the surface. Because in the end, Bartimaeus' sight, the lack of which had consigned him to a life of having to feel his way here and there, actually freed him to be a follower of Jesus. He goes from one who should have been passed by Jesus to one who joins with Jesus on the way as one of his disciples. He asked for the greatest, most outlandish thing he could ask for that he would see, and Jesus gave that, and he gave him himself. He gave him life. He gave him himself. He freed him, and he made him a follower. Let's pray as we go to the table. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your word. I have to confess, you know, I, I um, even in preaching this, I've got my own little bit of nervousness in my gut. You know, can it really be true? Can I really ask him for anything? Can I really answer that question, what do you want me to do for you? You know, there's something that just kind of kicks in that goes, ugh, I, this, is, this is the thing I've been screwing up for so long and I need to get my act together and I'm not going to God about it again. Or, you know, I don't want to be impetuous. I don't want to be disrespectful. I want to, whatever. Lord, I just want to say you're sufficient for all of that. And I thank you that you, um, unlike, you know, getting a mortgage or something, we don't have to get, you know, pre-approved to come to you. Uh, you just put out the call and put us in front of you, and we're able there to lay it all before you. And Lord, your generosity, your lavish grace is, is depicted, is pictured at this table, you know, where, where we don't come up here um, making resolutions. We don't come up here, um, uh, you know, with the sense that uh, we've got to meet your demands. We come here uh, in faith, trusting you. Uh, knowing that the demands have been fully met by you, that you have fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf, that that righteousness is imputed to us, that the sin, Lord, that, um, for which we should have been judged, the sin for which we should have perished forever, Lord, um, that sin was imputed to you on the cross. The wrath of God for that sin fell upon you, not us, and we thank you for that. And we thank you that there is not one ounce of wrath left over for us, but that in you we have this. We have a feast. We have a meal. We have um, you uh, feeding us. And Lord, we take uh, comfort in that, knowing that we can come with all of our mess. We can come with faith. Faith isn't perfection. Faith is dependence. Faith is turning from all other trusts and trusting in you. Help us to come in that way. Lord, feed us at this table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.